Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Banter Podcast, episode 34. This is your host, Ben Kern. I'm here with my co-host, Mike Luciano. Uh, how, how are you doing this week? Are you alive? Are you well? Are you healthy? Are you calm? Well, I am alive. I can't speak to any of those other things. <laughs> I'm terrified. I am absolutely terrified. We've talked on this podcast how really the only way Trump can win uh, this election uh, in our view, is if he tries to steal it. And he is doing a whole lot of legwork on that front, which we'll get into. And we'll talk about how likely he is to succeed on that front. But I just want to switch gears for one second. My wife and I just got back from uh, Yosemite uh, National Park. And what I saw was beautiful and alarming. <laughs> so <laughs> the landscape, I mean, it is just a beautiful place to be. It is just so, it's so breathtaking. And I wish I could have enjoyed it a little more than I did because the number of people I had to be in close proximity with on the hiking trails who refused to mask up was alarming. Yes, it's it, Yosemite is a wide open space, but on some of these hiking trails, I came to see firsthand why we are in the position we are in here in the United States in terms of the pandemic. And on these trails, which many of which are very narrow, and you really can't social distance. So if you're crossing paths with somebody coming the other way, the smart thing to do, which is what my wife and I did, we would have our, our masks in our pockets or holding them in our hand. And if we see someone approaching, we would put our masks on. And then once we pass those, those folks, we would take our masks off and continue our hike. The number of people who did, did not reciprocate, is, it was shocking. It was like maybe 50%, maybe even a little more. Like people just did not give a shit, you know? And some of these trails, they're like three feet wide and there's no opportunity to, there's no opportunity to social distance. And you had people saying who weren't masking up, hi, how are you doing? It's like, do not throw your droplets in my direction. During the middle of a pandemic. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, I think in, in where I am in DC in Maryland, it's about, you know, when we go out hiking places, it's probably like, I would say 70, 30, 70% are masking up and respectful and 30% are not, you know? So I, I, that make kind of makes sense that the further out to the sticks you get the, um, you know, <laughs> the, the, the numbers start to tilt in favor of, uh, uh, the non-mask wearers and the non-conscientious people. I'm, I'm get. You could probably guess their political affiliation. I'm sure. Oh, most certainly. Early on, we knew what we were in for when we saw our first real-life in the wild Trump truck parade. And you know what? A lot of people say, you know, they shit on these Trump truck parades. I don't mind it because it lets me know not to get involved with them. They they wear it on their sleeve uh, or the side of their truck or, you know, the flag on their truck. Like, okay, all right. You know, do these it. are the not shy Trump supporters. And I'm, I'm grateful for them too. What I, what I, yeah, what I really, you know, what I really worry about, uh, particularly when it comes to the election, is the so-called shy Trump voter, which I don't know, there's a lot of debate about, about as to whether they exist. Um, but like, as you say, you know, the the overt, the shameless Trump supporters, you know, I think they're doing everybody a favor. 
Yeah, and and I think you have uh, this whole shy Trump supporter. They may there may have been something to that in uh, 2016. Yeah, in 2016, but like now this time around, like things are different. You know, we got a global pandemic. We got 230,000 dead Americans. We got very high unemployment. We've got. I think a, a lot of the nation just has Trump fatigue. You know, they. Yeah, they, they want a president they don't have to think about, who's not saying all these crazy things all the time. I, I don't know. What's your read on it? So, I mean, look, if you look at the uh, 538 po- um, polling simulation now, it's basically about as close – Trump's chances or pass to victory are about as close to zero as you can get. They have um, – Trump now has uh, – of all the simulations, tr- Trump wins 10 times in 100, and Biden wins 89 times in 100, right? If you look at The Economist, um, The Economist's election simulation is even more – I mean, it's, I think it's like 95 out of 100 for, for, for Biden, and Trump, and Trump is five. So it, according to the polls, statistically, it, it's basically – and I think basically 538, as I understand the way that the 538 model is built – Trump is it they they they're basically giving Trump some leeway here right they're kind of they're adding weight to uh these potentially shy Trump supporters or potentially underrepresented underrepresented uneducated white males right that they seem to have undercounted in 2016 so all the the you know the the early voting is is surging when you look at the undecideds, there are fewer undecideds. The independents are breaking towards Biden in a significant way. Um, so these take out many of the unknowns, right, uh, that we had in 2016. So, you know, it looks to me like it's we're in good shape. Um, I'm going to refer here to a conversation that happened um, on a on a Vox podcast with Ezra Klein and Nate Silver. Nate Silver, who is who founded Five Thirty Eight, um, uh, who is you know he's probably the best kind of polling mind in America, I would say. Um, and you know, I, I he, he's basically the only pollster that I really I will cite as a um, you know a, as a really trustworthy source because. Mostly because he's so self-critical, um, and he's very cautious about what he says, so he's never hundred percent certain about anything. But there, there was an interaction in the podcast that they had uh, that I think is worth um, going over, uh, worth discussing, and worth highlighting. So they open the podcast. Ezra Klein says, "Here, I have two questions. First, how does Biden lead, Biden's lead compare to Clinton's in 2016? And second, do you think pollsters have corrected their mistakes they made in 2016, such that their polls are likely to be reliable this year? And Nate Silver answers, this is his answer. He said, first, let me back up and say Trump can still win. In 2016, our final forecast said Trump had a 29% chance, and that came through right now we give him a 12% chance to win in November. That's not trivial, but it's a different landscape. Um, one difference is that there were fewer undecided voters this year. In 2016, there were about 13 or 14 percent undecided plus the party. It's around six percent this year. That's a pretty big difference. So that first mechanism that I described that helped Trump is probably not going to be a factor. Trump could win every undecided voter in these polls, and he would still narrowly lose the electoral college. Biden's lead is also a little bit larger. 
after the FBI director James Comey letter, Clinton's lead went down to three or four points in national polls and two or three points in the average tipping point state. Biden is ahead by more, more like five points in the average tipping point state. We can definitely find cases in the past where there was a five-point polling error in key states. That's why Trump can win. But a 2016 error would not be quite enough. If the polls missed by exactly the same margin, exactly the same states, then instead of losing three key Rust Belt states by one point, Biden would win them by one or two points. He might also hold on in Arizona where the polls were fine in 2016. So it would be a close call, but one that wound up electing Biden in the end, pending court disputes, etc. So... I don't know about you, but that makes me feel a lot better about where we are. You know, I, I try to be as realistic about this as possible and, and try to, you know, I want to hear the worst news. Um, what, what is the worst info that we have? What is the worst case scenario for Biden? And, and the worst case scenario for Biden, there are some polls that have him, um, that have Trump winning this, uh, but they're not, um, except they're not polls that are, widely accepted or accepted as being good or trustworthy so you know um i i'm not seeing where he where trump finds these votes right i think the independent vote is 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 interesting as well the fact that they're breaking towards biden and the fact that there are so that you know the number of undecided voters is cut in half this year Right, so that, it just means that there are fewer variables, right? It means that we know a lot more going in than we did in 2016. Um, and we know what can go wrong and when it can go wrong. And, you know, there are just, there's, there is, but Biden has, a, has much more leeway here than Clinton did. Um, you know, he has a bigger, lead, he has a much bigger lead, a significantly bigger lead. Um, and it, it, it's a cushion that allows polling, you know, significant polling errors and for him still to win. So, yes, I don't see how we could we couldn't really be in better shape heading heading into uh, November third. You know, the district level polling, some of these competitive congressional districts backs up that. You know, so there's been polling out of suburban Phoenix and suburban St. Louis and places like that where Trump is underperforming himself from four years ago, sometimes right. it, by upwards of 10 points, which is absolutely huge. And I think looking at that kind of like micro level polling, that yeah. really is sounding the alarm or should sound an alarm for the Trump campaign. Um, so yeah, I mean, we can look at national and we can look at state level and, and those are certainly important because they kind of give us a, a, a sense of the overall sentiment, but to get into the weeds, you, you look at some of these, or you look at some of these congressional districts and how Trump is doing in them. And it's, it's just not looking good for him. We've also seen he, he now trails among women by double digits. Uh, he trails among seniors. There was one poll that had him down by like 20 points or 21 points among seniors, even I mean, if it's incredible. That's, yeah. inc that's an incredible deficit. Yeah, even if that poll is off and is, uh, you know, by 10 of, points, even if it's off by 10 yeah, points, it's just a, it's just a huge margin. So he's underperforming in these in these, um, you know, red state suburbs from where he was four years ago. He's losing with women big. He's losing with seniors big. Turnout is high. I, just before we got on this podcast, the AP reported we're recording this on a Friday. The AP reported that. 
the number of ballots cast in Texas in this year's election already exceeds the number of ballots cast in Texas in 2016. And this is before voting even ends on Tuesday. So, you know, historically, the more people turn out to vote, the better it is for Democrats, the worse it is for Republicans. All signs point to a Biden victory, but there is an element that we absolutely cannot discount here. And it's one we have that's it's it's been a theme through our podcast for the last few months, and that is the prospect of Donald Trump stealing this election through the judiciary by filing lawsuit after lawsuit to get the result he wants. And this is something that they're they've been pretty open about this. It was their it was their main reason, right? Their main public justification for getting Amy Coney Barrett on the Supreme Court as soon as possible because pe- Donald Trump and Ted Cruz and other Republicans were saying, we want nine justices in case this election goes to the Supreme Court, which is what they are banking on, because they're seeing the same stuff we're seeing in in the the polls. You know, they know Donald Trump's not going to win the election outright legitimately, so they are going to have to do everything they can to cast doubt on the election results. And I have, a, I have a list here. I have a little partial list on Republican efforts to, su- to suppress voting. And this was actually on um, All In with Chris Hayes on Thursday. And, and he, he put together a pretty good inexhaustive list, I will note, of all of the ways in which Republicans are working to make it harder for people to vote and are making it harder for all of the votes to be counted. Okay, so here's just a sampling. The Supreme Court rules Wisconsin cannot count mail-in ballots received after Election Day. The Supreme Court blocks an order allowing Alabama voters to cast their ballots curbside. So this is this this whole curbside voting thing, you know, the the idea that in some states they allow people to cast their ballots just they drive up and they and that's how they cast their ballot apparently that's somehow that's an invalid form of voting okay another one supreme court rules mail in ballots in south carolina must have a witness signature okay most states do not have that but south carolina has a law uh, Pennsylvania Republicans asked Supreme Court to reverse state court ruling, allowing ballots that arrive up to three days after the election day to be counted. Okay, I, that was uh, that was overturned by the Supreme Court. That was rejected by the Supreme Court. Excuse me. Thankfully, North Carolina Republicans and the Trump campaign asked the Supreme Court to block extension of deadline to receive mail-in ballots. I believe they won that one. Uh, Trump campaign sues to limit the use of drop-off boxes in Pennsylvania. Trump campaign and Republicans in Nevada sue to stop vote counting in the Las Vegas area over signature checks. Texas top court upholds governor's policy, allowing only one drop-off box per county. Texas Republicans sue to void thousands of ballots cast by voters in their cars. Again, curbside voting. Republicans in Michigan sue to block ruling allowing voters to choose anyone to deliver their absentee ballots and requiring absentee ballots that arrive late to be counted. And finally, 
from this inexhaustive list, Trump campaign and Republicans sue to limit absentee voting in Iowa and make it harder for counties to process absentee ballot applications. So the Republican strategy for winning is doing everything they can to make it harder to vote and make it harder to count votes because they know how wildly unpopular they are. Right. And I think, you know, look, that, that, that really is their only path, real pathway to victory here is to is to kind of ensure that votes don't get counted or people don't vote. Uh, but, you know, I so here's what I, I, I think I feel at least right. I, I think what's happening right now is that most Republicans have basically written Trump off. They don't think he's going to win. Um, and I think that if he does try to, this is the good, the, the good news is that I think if Trump tries to steal the election, um, I do think that uh, you're going to see Republicans um, leave him hanging, hanging out to dry. They're not going to go along with it. <laughs> Look, okay, hear me out. Okay. This is, again, okay. I'm just, wor- I, this is just a theory that I'm, 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 I'm running with at the moment. Right. I, I think that if you look at a lot of the evidence, they've written Trump off. They don't, they don't really care about the guy anymore. Uh, I think, you know, you can see that with the stimulus negotiations. We talked about that last week, that Mitch McConnell is trying to block uh, stimulus coming in because he knows that um, uh, Trump is leaving um, and that uh, he wants to kneecap Biden when he comes in. That's why I think they're rejecting a stimulus that Trump desperately needs. Uh, Mitch, you know, Mitch McConnell has been, you know, he hasn't. He, he's not going to the White House. He, he's publicly rebuked them, or he's publicly kind of distanced himself from their coronavirus response. You, you know, uh, you've got uh, um, Susan Collins. Basically, uh, I think it was Susan Collins, basically saying she's not voting for Trump in the general election. Uh, she didn't. She didn't say it overtly, but uh, she's. <laughs> she didn't say she was voting for him, um, which tells you something. Um, I see. Uh, a sort of uh, this exodus, really, from from um, uh, Trump's. The, the GOP are finally recognizing that the guy is toxic, right? So if he tries to pull some bullshit, which he probably will, the Republicans have to make a calculation here, right? Um, because you could, he can, you know, Trump can try and steal the election and and, and ram it through the, you know, send it up. Um, you know, all the way to the Supreme Court. They they can do all that kind of stuff, but you have to have like the 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 unpopularity will be too much, I think, for the GOP to bear this time round because they're going to get crushed. They're getting crushed in the Senate. Um, they've got crushed in the midterms in 2018. There is only so much that they can take of of um, of political losses with this guy. Right? He he. This, this guy is a uh, is 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 toxic. If he tries to steal the election, the long-term impact on the GOP is going to be – it will be worse than anything that we've seen before. And I think that they they understand this. And I think that the right-wing media understand this as well. Apparently, Rupert Murdoch has written Trump off already. Um, you know, so, you know, Trump could reinstall himself as president, right? But what mandate does he have, right? Like, how many – you know – if if you thought the resistance was bad was 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 active um, from two thousand you know sixteen to two thousand twenty, like we haven't seen anything yet. You know it's going to throw the country into into a, like a civil war. Um, and I think my personal feeling is that this is when you're going to see Republicans coming out and telling Trump like, okay, you you got to go now. Like this that that's enough. 
Um, that's the thing, you know, look, I'm, I'm never, I'm, I'm always amazed at how disappointed I am in the Republicans. You always think, there's always something where you think they can't, they can't be this spineless, right? Um, but, oh, but they can. Oh, but they can, right? But I think that the, the tide is turning. You know, I genuinely do think the tide is turning and that they are now understanding like, okay, this is like real serious now. And the guy has got, you know, he will have no political capital if if he gets into power again, if he reinstalls himself as president, right? What 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 political capital does he have? He didn't have any in the first place. Well well hold well, hold on a second. When you say reinstalls himself as president, like what are what are you talking about there? Well, let's let's say he he um, let's say he wins these legal challenges, right? Let's say he declares himself victor on uh, on the eve of the election and stops the counting, <laughs> stops them counting ballots after you know after the mail-in ballots and et cetera, et cetera, and says, right, that's it, I've won. I just I don't see Republicans going along with him. Wow, really? Not this time, not th- not this time around, and it's not because they're brave. Right, I just I think that they will recognise the fact that like this is this is literally an extinction, this is an extinction level event, as Andrew Sullivan said in 2015 about Trump's presidency, right? And I think the Republicans will finally understand that the country will become ungovernable if he if he does that, and I think that they know that. Well. Uh, you and I are going to have to disagree on this one because I think Republicans, this Republican Party is so amoral and corrupt and power hungry. If they think that Donald Trump can stay in office, it, they're going to support this guy to the bitter end. And if it means going along with whatever harebrained legal strategy he has for suing in in various state courts and federal courts to stop vote counting in places where he's ahead and whatever it is i they're going to go along with it they are going to go along with it and i say this because nothing i have seen over the last 4 years leads me to believe that there's a breaking point for any of them. I think the breaking point for them is when Donald Trump is absolutely finito, gone. There is no chance of him coming back, and and that's it. But as long as he's president of the United States and as long as he is insisting that he won the election, no matter what is going on in terms of the vote counts, in terms of the legal ballots, because we know he's going to declare himself the winner, if not on election night, very shortly after. And Republicans, they, they're going to go with him. They are going to insist they might not say Trump won, but they'll they'll insist on you know letting all of those lawsuits that the Trump campaign is is filing. And I'll tell you this: if Trump does manage to succeed through the courts, and if he is reinaugurated on January twentieth, of course the Republicans are going to go with him. Of course they're going to say, "All right, good, all right, Trump's in." Uh, you know, we know he's garbage, but uh, you know we love power and. Uh, you know, we're going to get more conservative justices and maybe we get some more tax cuts, you know, who, deregulation. Who knows what's going to happen? They, they're going to they will re up for Trump every time because they are just amoral cowards who have 
absolutely, they have no principles. They have absolutely no principles. And they will go along with Trump if he, if he gets another four years. I guarantee it. If it, I, I hope that that doesn't happen. I, I hope we don't even have to see who's right on this. If we do, we're going to be in big trouble. Right. I mean, look, I, I could be reading the um, I could be reading the signs wrong. Like it's entirely possible that that I've got this wrong. Um, but I don't know. I just that that's my sense of where the GOP is at the moment. You know that they've basically given up on him. Like they can't even be bothered to. Most of the most of the the most well the well known Republicans are not actively stumping for Trump. You know. They're not holding rallies for him. You know, they're not doing any. They're not doing anything um, uh, proactive to help to help the guy get elected. So I think that they just they think yeah, it, it, it's a waste of time and it's over, and they're distancing themselves from him. There is another consideration here, and it's it's a little dark. But imagine being a Republican who, you know, in, in the in the interim, like as as any legal battle over the election is is going on between uh, the first Tuesday in November and the the results have to be certified in December. Imagine being a Republican who rolls the dice and comes out and says the president lost. He should step down to ensure a peaceful transition of power. How many Republicans have that much spine that they're willing to say something like that, knowing that if Trump prevails, the least bad thing that's going to happen is that Trump is going to pillory them on social media and basically become the next the next Jeff Flake or uh the next Bob Corker, that's at a minimum what's going to happen to them, right? So uh, you, you might be forced into retirement, basically, because you took a shot at the king and missed. Going down the other end of the, 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 other end of the spectrum, what is another four years of Trump going to look like? You know, because we, we're, we're in this kind of like nascent authoritarian paradigm here with Trump, where he is, the federal government is basically run by his toadies who have no real respect for the constitution or norms or guardrails, whatever you want to call or, them. Or government. Or government, right. I, these people are political nihilists. You know, it's like the old joke, Republicans, they think government is ineffective. And then when they get in power, they show us just how true that can be. Right, 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 right. But but this is what I I I think the, the the you know the word is is that most Republicans don't like Trump. They hate the guy and they want him gone. But obviously they're you know because they're a bunch of spineless sociopaths. They don't really care. You know they're willing they they're willing to take Trump's madness if it if it keeps them in power. But I you know I do think that at some point it's going to come down like it's not just going to be about short term gain. I think that some of them are genuinely will start to believe like okay we we can't keep going like this. It's, it's impossible. The losses are too are too great to it to incur. They're like I think they're going to oppose him because they're spineless, not because they're they're brave. You know, look, I could be wrong. I th I think uh, I I don't know which I, look, Mitt Romney will. You know, you can basically Mitt Romney will definitely stand up and say that that uh, Trump you know Trump has lost. Right, Mitt Romney is one Republican who has you know he's shown some spine. Uh, I don't know who else would do it. Like that's a difficult one. It, it's not going to be Lindsey Graham. Oh, no, it is not going to be Lindsey Graham. 
Lindsey Graham was arguably the most outspoken anti-Trump Republican senator. And then something funny happened, and that is Donald Trump became president. And, and now Lindsey Graham, he's gone from principled anti-Trump conservative to Trump lapdog. And it is really amazing just to watch that transition. Ted Cruz, too. Ted Cruz, who Trump made fun of Ted. Basically, Trump called his wife ugly. Basically, yeah. Something like uh, it was a side-by-side of Melania and Heidi Cruz. And he said something like, a picture is worth a thousand words. And we knew exactly what the implication was there. And he also, uh, Trump also suggested that uh, Rafael Cruz... Uh, Ted's dad was involved in the assassination of JFK. So basically, <laughs> these guys are shameless. And I, I actually have a clip from uh, from The Daily Show from 2016. I believe it was 2016. Uh, that circulated around Twitter. And I watched this thing. And it just, it just it shows you. It really does. It really does. So I'll play this clip. Donald Trump cares the better of my party. I think it taints conservatism for generations to come. I think his campaign is opportunistic, race-baiting, religious bigotry, xenophobia. Other than that, he'd be a good nominee. If you say Donald Trump is not a Republican, why does it seem like the Republican base fits him like a glove? What's going on? Do the voters not know that this, or have you maybe given them the impression that maybe this is a party that supports xenophobia and bigotry and all of those things you just Is that possible? It's possible that some do, absolutely. There are some people in the party who do not have the correct views. Am I a citizen? Yeah. No, I'm not. I'm not. Why? why? Do you have a green card? I do not. If I were you, I'd be in a hurry. (laughs) (laughs) Is that you worried about? Why would you say that Trump wins? Your days are numbered, but... You know what I love? Young black, you, li- you young black li- liberal guys have- from Africa is not going to work with him. <laughs> Let's play this clip. <laughs> that skin is like being shot or poisoned. What does it really matter? Lindsey <laughs> Graham, I don't understand. I don't understand. If it is like being... Okay, first of all, who is shooting and who is poisoning between Trump and Cruz? Well, Donald is like being shot in the head. Okay. You might find an antidote to poisoning. I don't know, but maybe there's time. But is, I don't understand. Are you saying, wait, are you saying? I'm saying you, my party's completely screwed up. But then why would you, why would you nominate, why would you nominate anyone, Why couldn't we have kept that Lindsey Graham? Oh, how times have changed, eh? I didn't. I didn't agree with Lindsey Graham on almost anything. But that's a guy like you could say. And this was at a time when Trump and Cruz were jockeying for the nomination. And here you have Lindsey Graham not only saying, "Yeah, Trump is terrible," but Ted Cruz is also awful because Ted Cruz is known as one of the biggest assholes in the Senate. And here is Lindsey Graham, 2016. Lindsey Graham just saying, "Yep." My party's completely screwed up because are the choices now between these two guys. But I think Lindsey, he's an ambitious guy, and he made a calculation that Hillary was going to win in, no, in November 2016. And so he came out as the quote-unquote principled conservative, just like just like Ted Cruz did at the RNC in 2016, because you, re- you might remember he was one of the speakers there, and he refused to endorse Donald Trump. All he said was, vote your conscience. That was the best he could do for Trump, and he got jeered and booed because he thought, like so many other prominent Republicans at the time, that Trump would lose in November. And then in Cruz's case, 
he was going to get ready to run in 2020 against Hillary Clinton as, you know, the principled conservative who stood up to the crazy wing of the Republican Party in 2016 against Donald Trump. But a funny thing happened in 2016. Trump wins. And so now for them, their calculation is different. Lindsey Graham is up for election this year, and he knows that to win a primary in South Carolina – he knows that to stave off a, a credible Republican primary challenge in South Carolina, he's got to be all in for Trump. Because if he had maintained this attitude, he would have been primaried and he would have lost. Same thing with Ted Cruz in 2018. You know, if Ted Cruz had had this anti-Trump stance, he would have been primaried in Texas and Republicans in Texas would have thrown him out. So it's just so blatantly calculating and self-serving and we just should not be surprised by it. That Lindsey Graham, the one who appeared in 2016 on the Daily Show, it sounds like a human being. You know, this is kind of strange. You know, it's like he it sounds like a normal human being who understands exactly what's happening with this guy. But it just sort of shows you how the allure of power and how Trump has been able to subvert the system uh, and essentially dismantle the Republican Party uh, because he took power. And basically, most Republicans are the, the, Trump. Trump is the Republican Party. The Republican voters are Trump. You know, and that's the thing. That's why he has rock solid support amongst registered Republicans, because he embodies who they really are. I mean, it's the sort of the dark side of America It's the 30 to 40 percent of the nation that are, you know, that have these fascistic tendencies. Um, and, you know, I think this is modern conservatism, which is not conservative anymore to be relevant has to embrace this you know um he's he's trump trump is essentially just all he's done is satiated a need yeah, the need is already there you know i don't think you know trump is not the um he's not the progenitor of all this stuff he, he's the symptom right he's the symptom of a very 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 sick um uh country or a sick part of the country this this the the conservative wing of um or, you can't call them conservative i don't know what they are anymore i mean it's reactionary you know conservative fascist fascistic sort of um mobs now that that trump commands you know we're in dangerous times i god knows what a post-trump presidency looks like where does trump go what happens when this is all over i i don't know first of all i you know i don't really, at the, this present moment i don't care i think it's all eyes on uh all eyes on election day you know it's just to get rid of this guy as fast as possible so we can kind of you know hopefully try to contain the issue as opposed to control it you know you can't you, you i don't think you can ever sort of get rid of of this element of american society but you know at least Democrats can get in and you know, funding education and creating jobs and whatnot is going to at least keep it under control. Step one is getting Trump out of office. But there's a step two here. And if Biden wins, there's going to be a lot of intra-Democratic Party squabbling over it. And it's something we've talked about on this podcast. And it will include things like statehood for Puerto Rico, if Puerto Rico wants it, a statehood uh, D for D.C. Well, it wouldn't technically D.C. wouldn't become a state. You would have to cleave out a territory to be a state because the District of Columbia is supposed to be distinct. The District of Columbia is supposed to be its own federal district and not part of a state. But you can cleave off parts of the district where people actually live and make that a state. We've talked about court packing or court expansion, whatever you want to call it. There's going to be a lot of arguing 
over that if if Biden wins. And I saw one of my former writers was arguing against such measures. He was arguing against court expansion, statehood for D.C., Puerto Rico, Virgin Islands, whatever you want. And he said, two wrongs don't make a right. And that really irked me because he was grossly understating how many wrongs have been committed by conservatives over the years. I mean, what they have done is just so egregious. And we are where we are. And I don't mean to turn this into a history lesson, but we're in this position in large part because the the sane people in this country refuse to stand up to the backward asshole faction of this country, which has existed for a long time. You could go back to the Constitutional Convention when they were trying to hammer out a framework for a federal government and the southern states wanted their slaves to count toward population in the, for the sake of representation in the Congress. Even though the slaves obviously weren't going to get any votes, they were saying, oh, no, the slaves should count. And the northern states were like, well, we understand why you would want that, but that's definitely weird. And you know, they end up agreeing on the three-fifths compromise, right? For every, you know, a black person counted as three-fifths of a white person. And the other states went along with it because, uh, hey, we really need to hammer out this constitution. Then you, you go up to the Civil War. Toward the end of the Civil War, Lincoln basically said that the Confederates, uh, the Confederate leadership would not be prosecuted right, for seceding from the Union. And look, I am not a fan of the death penalty, but by the standards of the day, Jefferson Davis, Robert E. Lee, Alexander Stevens, and all the other top Confederates should have died having their necks snapped at the end of a rope. And if that sounds harsh, just remember that those guys got hundreds of thousands of Americans killed in a war that they started. And why did they start that war? Because they wanted to keep millions of other Americans as slaves. Fast forward a decade later, 1876 election, Rutherford Hayes against Samuel Tilden. It was a very controversial election. And basically, there was an unofficial compromise. The southern states, they wanted Tilden. The northern states wanted Hayes. The northern states got Hayes, but in exchange, they agreed to withdraw federal troops from the south, which were there as part of Reconstruction, to ensure things like black people don't fall back into slavery. You know, black people get to vote, things like that. So the north is part of that deal. The, the, the federal government pulls the troops from the south, and what happens Within 20 or 30 years, not a single black person gets to vote in the South. And the federal government didn't do, do anything. Instead of going back in and saying, all right, you know what? We thought you could trust you, uh, we, but we shouldn't have trusted you. So now we got to come back in. Same thing with you know Jim Crow. Like You had George Wallace blocking the entrance to a school, preventing – to a public school, preventing – Black kids who had been, it was deemed that they could attend after Brown v. Board. You know, he gets arrested, but then nothing happens to him. He goes on, he, he runs for president, and he wins some, some Dixiecrat states. He wins some of the Deep South. Like, 
And then the Republicans see this. The Republican Party looks at this and say, you know what? We can probably draw in some of these bitter Southern Democrats whose northern wing decided we're going to be for things like the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act. So let's start talking about law and order, which is code for black people are bad. They use the Southern strategy, Nixon. You know, it starts with Goldwater in 64, really, but Nixon in 68, law and order. And that's what Trump is channeling today. But conservatives in this country continue to get away with just these horrible offenses because no one is willing to step in and do the right thing. No one is willing to tell them, you know what? You got to face the music for this. Jefferson Davis, Robert E. Lee, you got to face the music for starting this civil war. All you Southern conservatives who are preventing black people from voting in the Jim Crow South after reconstruction, you have to face a penalty for this. George Wallace you broke the law. You refused to desegregate your schools. You have to face a penalty for this. And you can even go up to Richard Nixon after he's pardoned by Gerald Ford. Nixon didn't have to face a penalty for this. Like n- They never have to pay. They absolutely never have to pay. And you can go right up, and this is the last point, <laughs> just this little trip through American history. This is the last point I'll make on this. You can go up to two weeks ago. We talked about this on the podcast. Dianne Feinstein at that ridiculous sham hearing confirmation hearing for Amy Coney Barrett that Lindsey Graham rammed through in the most hypocritical way possible after the garbage that Senate Republicans pulled in 2016. Dianne Feinstein said, these are some of the best hearings I've participated in, and it gives me hope that we could maybe enact some bipartisan legislation. Get out of here. When are these people going to pay? So the point is, A Biden administration, and I'm not optimistic on this, but a Biden administration needs to come in, if we have one, and do everything possible to take these people, okay, this started a long time ago, the slavers at the Constitutional Convention in 1787, take these people and send them out into the political wilderness for decades, or however long it takes to get them to understand that this is not how it's going to be anymore. I agree. And I hope that you are right. I hope that Biden, you know, something will happen. I think they'll do, you know, um, these guys aren't going to get off completely scot-free. But, you know, history shows us that they basically do. I mean, look, George W. Bush, you know, invaded the wrong country after 9-11, didn't pay any political price whatsoever, got re-elected in 2004. You know, he's now happy in retirement, uh, experiencing somewhat of a renaissance. In, uh, in popular culture, even amongst liberals, he's panning around with Ellen DeGeneres and whatnot, you know, uh, he and uh, Michelle Obama seem to get on pretty well. So, yeah, I mean, look, you know, it, it's, um, it's they have to be, you know, there really does have to be consequences to, to this. This 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 cannot stand. Um, but you know, Biden has a very, very tricky path ahead of him, an incredibly tricky path. He's got the Supreme Court to worry about. He has the Affordable Care Act to worry about. He has, uh, you know, he has the pandemic to worry about. Um, he has the economy to worry about. These are huge, huge, huge issues that he's going to have to fight tooth and nail with the Republicans over as soon as he gets into office so you know um frankly just as a matter of sort of pragmatism getting revenge on trump people is not he's probably not going to be high or high on the list you know we're in the you know the middle of an absolute 
terrifying, absolutely terrifying crisis. You know, but hopefully, you know, I, I think that Trump is going to face some consequences. Southern District of New York, um, that they they've got his taxes. He's going to have to face some consequences somewhere. But I mean, yeah, it's uh, if they get away with this, if they get away with what what um, the Republicans get away with what they've been doing for the past four years. I think it sets an incredibly bad precedent, and it does show that America isn't is not, is not a serious country anymore. And I think that's Biden's job will be to come in and show that you know they mean business. If you look at what just happened in uh, in uh, recently in the UK, that um, the ex um, Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn was recently suspended from the party um, because of his refusal to take responsibility for um, uh, this damning report. Um, that showed you know, rife anti-Semitism in the Labour Party and Jeremy Corbyn did not do anywhere near enough to stamp it out. Um, and Corbyn has refused to take, you know, to take this report seriously. He's denounced it and said that, you know, it's wrong. So the current leader, Keir Starmer, kicked him out. He suspended him. And, and and to me that that's the way, uh, that's the way you deal with, that's the way that you stamp your authority. You know, when you're running the show, that's the way you do things. You know, it's like Jeremy Corbyn, at least in my view, uh, was represented a kind of a rot, a malignant rot within the within the Labour Party. And Keir Starmer wants to make the party electable again. So he's doing everything he can to kind of rid the party of of Corbynistas. uh, And now he's ridded it of Corbyn himself. So I think that that's the way that, you know, Biden should should take heed and do something similar when he gets into power, if he gets into power. Fingers crossed. If only we had a system like that here. Right, 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 right. But look, but I, I think uh, I, t- we, we should we should get on to a, a slightly lighter topic um, rather than oh, the please. end of American democracy, uh, which is our, our favourite pal, the Glenn Greenwald, and Glenn Greenwald's departure from The Intercept. Mike, you actually alerted me about this, I think, uh, via text. <laughs> my, my text to you was, it was very eloquent. I said, uh, let's see, ha, 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 fucking Greenwald, all caps. Brilliant text, brilliant text message. So, yes, this was uh, one of the biggest stories of the week, that Glenn Greenwald has left the website that he founded, or he co-founded, in what has to be just a sort of, it, it perfect Greenwaldian kind of temper tantrum his editors tried to edit him because he was ranting and raving about hunter biden conspiracy theories greenwell wouldn't accept it and then left and then and then published the email interaction between him and and uh, one of his editors at the intercept that he thought was was showing him in a good light and how they were trying to censor him um but made him look like a complete asshole I mean, it really was hilarious. It really was absolutely hysterical. And Glenn Greenwald's, as is always the case with Greenwald, the announcement was just, it was, I don't know, yet further proof that he doesn't need, he doesn't just need an editor for uh, his journalism. He needs an editor for length and for, I mean, it's just number of words that this guy puts into it's sort of like reading, um, what would it be like? It's like reading a, a, a manual. It's like reading a, an Ikea manual or something on how to build a table, right? Uh, that's very charitable. <laughs> right, it's this incredibly... 
yeah, it's it's unreadable. Basically, Green World is unreadable. I can get a, cu- a couple of paragraphs in, and I have to stop. I've had enough already. You know, fire and brimstone, moral lecturing, and just kind of reiterating the same point over and over and over again. In in you know, he finds different ways to say exactly the same thing. I, why this guy thinks he's a better journalist with is is beyond me. But everything that he's done in the wake of his departure from from the Intercept has basically shown that this guy needs an editor more than anything else, right? To to maintain any sort of credibility, which he's done a great job of dismantling his credibility over the past few years. You, you know, and I think the only people that have been able to keep him in check are, um, you know, are his editors. And they've just, and it's, you know, from what The Intercept said in response to Queen World, it's is clear that they just had completely had enough of the guy. They're, they're, they're over him. They are over him. And they should be over him. Glenn Greenwald he made a name for himself attacking the Bush administration over foreign policy and intrusions into privacy. And Greenwald continued to do the same under Obama. But when Trump became president, suddenly most of his broadsides were targeted at the Democratic Party and the media. And he didn't have a whole lot of negative things to say about Donald Trump, which is weird for a guy who in the past had viewed himself as someone who'd speak truth to power. So the idea that he would suddenly train most of his fire on the less powerful, the party out of power uh, after Trump's inauguration seems uh, a little strange. And you read that exchange that he that he published. He had an email exchange with a, a, two different editors at The Intercept, and there's been a debate as to you know I've seen people debating like okay like like how how rigorous you know is this like normal people who haven't you know spent time in a newsroom like okay well how normal is this kind of interaction? The answer is it depends on just how how rigorous you want to be and what it looked like to me is that this editor, these two editors, these editors look like they wanted to kind of eliminate Greenwald's speculation out loud about Hunter Biden. Like Greenwald at one point says, there's no evidence that Hunter Biden, you know, that this is true about him. But, you know, kind of like, oh, I'm just asking questions or I'm just floating the possibility. And it looked like the editors didn't weren't having any of that, which is their right. And after what What is their job? It is their job. And if that's the editorial decision they want to make, that's completely within their rights. And Glenn Greenwald seems to think that, like, he can just publish, he should be able to publish whatever he wants and and just completely bypass whatever editorial process is in place. And his emails are really snide and just just so self-dishing. Yeah, they're just so <laughs> self-indulgent. They really are. And I, I got to read the – I have to read Betsy Reed's response. After Glenn Greenwald threw this hissy fit and he announced that he was resigning from The Intercept and he, he published these emails that he thought would validate him, that people would look at these and say, oh, wow, he's in the right. But no, he totally – he seems just like a complete juvenile douche. Let me read what Betsy Reed, the editor-in-chief of The Intercept, had to say. Glenn Greenwald's decision to resign from The Intercept stems from a fundamental disagreement over the role of editors in the production of journalism and the nature of censorship. 
Glenn demands the absolute right to determine what he will publish. He believes that anyone who disagrees with him is corrupt, and anyone who presumes to edit his words is a censor. Thus the preposterous charge that The Intercept's editors and reporters, with the lone noble exception of Glenn Greenwald, have betrayed our mission to engage in fearless investigative journalism because we have been seduced by the lure of a Joe Biden presidency. A brief glance at the stories The Intercept has published on Biden will suffice to refute those claims. The narrative Glenn presents about his departure is teeming with distortions and inaccuracies, all of them designed to make him appear as a victim— rather than a grown person throwing a tantrum. <laughs> it would take too long to point them all out here, but we intend to correct the record in time. For now, it is important to make clear that our goal in editing his work was to ensure that it would be accurate and fair. While he accuses us of political bias, it was he who was attempting to recycle the dubious claims of a political campaign, the Trump campaign, and launder them as journalism. We have the greatest respect for the journalist Glenn Greenwald used to be, Ouch. <laughs> and we remain proud of the work we did with him over the past six years. It is Glenn who has strayed from his original journalistic roots, not The Intercept. The defining feature of wow. The Intercept's work in recent years has been the investigative journalism that came out of painstaking work by our staffers in Washington, New York, and across the country. It is the staff of The Intercept that has been carrying out our investigative mission, a mission that has involved a collaborative editing process. And finally, and this is I, this is, might be my favorite paragraph at the close, we have no doubt that Glenn will go on to launch a new media venture where he will face no collaboration with editors, such as the era of Substack and Patreon in that context. It makes good business sense for Glenn to position himself as the last true guardian of investigative journalism and to smear his longtime colleagues and friends as partisan hacks. We get it, but facts are facts. The Intercept record of fearless, rigorous, independent journalism speaks for itself. Ouch. Yeah, well, that's what happens. You know, when you're going to resign and then shit all over your colleagues on the way out, they're going to hit back. And this is perfect. And yes, I believe this is exactly correct. This I, Reed predicts he'll go on to form a new media venture. And I have almost no doubt, Ben, uh, tell me what you think, that it will involve Matt Taibbi, our other favorite. Undoubtedly. I mean, look, you know... I He's basically crapped all over them. Right? He's crapped all over his colleagues. He's crapped all over the site that he founded. Right? So he founded it. He clearly founded it right with this intention of having it be this respected institution. Otherwise, he would have just set up a. He, he, Glenn Greenwald's already done his 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 uh, blogging. He he had a blog on Google many years ago. It's I think it's clear evidence of the fact that he is that he has changed and it's not his not the people around him, right? It's not the, the site that he founded. I don't agree with The Intercept. I think The Intercept doesn't actually do great journalism, uh, m m mostly. I mean, largely because Green Greenwald's involved in, in, in a lot of it uh, with some in incredibly stupid errors, right? Easily spottable errors um, that Greenwald makes in his journalism. Um But, you know, it was something, you know, like I, it, it, it's not, uh, it's not Breitbart.com, you know, um, it's it's respectable. It's a respectable outlet, I would say. So you know, it's just amazing that he has chosen to go this route. But it it just sort of goes to show you that with you know with age with Greenwald, he isn't softening. You know, he's becoming more and more and more militant in his in as he ages and as he gets older, which is which is quite sad, 
really to watch it's quite sad to see someone who used to have a very fine mind kind of waste it um and yeah you know matt Taibbi is is doing exactly the same thing i wouldn't be surprised at all if if they both they start a new enterprise self self publish self edit um you know and matt Taibbi and uh and glenn greenwald are two people who desperately need editors right now because they're kind of going off the rails you know Taibbi too toby has gone completely off the rails with his reporting um yeah and you know yeah it's 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 a shame it's a it's a damn shame in Taibbi's case it's a shame i think i think greenwald was always gonna it was always gonna end like this with glenn greenwald you know uh, an island unto himself, unable to take to listen, or take advice, or take criticism from from anybody. I'll I'll stick up for the intercept a little bit. I, I read, or I read, I still read them, but I read the intercept despite Glenn Greenwald, uh, not because of it. They have they have done some great reporting on you know, for example, the child separation um, stuff that the Trump administration has perpetrated. Uh, privacy issues. I, their reporting is a lot of their reporting is very good. So I I was a fan. I still am a fan of the Intercept, despite Glenn Greenwald. But now that Greenwald is gone, it becomes much easier to like the Intercept uh, that it was. Basically, addition by subtraction. I mean, this is this is the best thing that could have happened to the Intercept. I think. I know Greenwald will. You know, a lot of his followers. On Twitter, you know, after he resigned, said, "Ah, oh, well, no longer reading the Intercept," so they might lose some people. But you know, if they do this right, they got a pretty good core of journalists to work with. If they keep doing good work, hopefully, it will be rewarded. But you mentioned Matt Taibbi. Taibbi, of course, he he's coming out in support of, of Greenwald because they're like two sides of the same coin at this point. Taibbi fired off a tweet yesterday where he said something like reporters he's spoken to have noticed that their editors have been more reluctant to run anti-Biden stories the closer we get to the election. Right. And not not naming anyone in particular. But let's just say for the sake of argument that Taibbi is not full of shit here. Okay, which is forgiving. But let's say that that's true. Why might it be the case that some media outlets don't want to hurt Biden's chances in the final stretch. Might it have anything to do with the fact that Trump has spent the last four years calling the media the enemy of the people? That's the media of which Taibbi is a part. Might it be the fact that Trump encourages his supporters to boo and hiss at reporters at his rallies? All right. Maybe it has something to do with the fact that reporters covering protests have been arrested by federal agents on numerous occasions. I mean, might it be the fact that Trump ordered his stooge attorney general to violently expel protesters and journalists from a public square so he could walk to a church for a photo op? Might it be any of those reasons? Those to me seem like really good reasons for what we call the free press to not run stories that could help the president of the United States, who has been extremely hostile to the free press, win re-election. Okay, right, right, no, ex- exactly, right, and and also, a lot of these stories have to have legs, right? The stories have to be legitimate stories, um, and they have to have some relevance. I mean, look, sure, uh, but nothing I've read thus far points to any wrongdoing 
being on Hunter Biden or Joe Joe Biden's behalf, right? They are these are sort of fraudulent charges concocted by um, the likes of Rudy Giuliani um, and whoever that some producer on Sean Hannity and Donald Donald Trump, right? And Tucker Carlson, who Tucker Carlson's like now dropped the story because it's clearly bullshit and he can't sustain it anymore. So the story is a nonsensical, uh, and b there are other more important stories right now. Okay, like th- this is th- there is if you're looking at Biden's corruption, there there is none. There, the, Biden is not a corrupt politician, right? At least not in the sense that Donald Trump is, right? I'm sure you could look at his voting record or the stuff with the credit card industry. There's plenty to go after Biden on. There really is. But you don't have to pick up right-wing talking points and run with them as if they're a story. And the media isn't suppressing them, despite what Greenwald and Tabu have been saying. The media isn't. You know, um, there was a, a, I think it was a, um, maybe an NBC journalist on Twitter who responded to Matt Taibbi saying, uh, when Matt Taibbi said, oh, look, you know, how many people, how many media outlets do you think are going to be covering this Hunter Biden story tomorrow? And this NBC journalist said to, to Taibbi, that, look, we've tried to get hold of this guy, Bobby Linsky, wherever his name was, right? We've tried to get hold of him, but he wouldn't answer any of our calls. So how are we supposed to do a story on him if he won't get back to us? I mean, it's just nonsense. Like, they, they are, it's just sort of, it's transparently... Um, ludicrous. Yeah, these stories are ridiculous, and the fact that Toby and Greenwald are obsessed with them is is you know, and and, and then also talking about a non-existent cover-up is is sort of they're just making things up now, which is I you know I can't for the life of me understand it for all the reasons that you are, are outlined as well. The the absolutely disgraceful behaviour of the Trump administration, particularly and the the, the threats towards the media, how they can they can say this with a straight face is just beyond me. If I were having a private conversation with them, I'd, l- I'd just like to ask, okay, what do you think would be worse? What we have now in the Trump administration or a Biden administration, right? Like just answer it straight up. Answer that question straight up. There's a part of the left that I call the never Biden left, which it seems Taibbi and, and Greenwald have signed on to and, and others you know, saying, all right, we're not going to vote for Biden. It's just more of the same. No, it's not more of the same. Okay. If look, if you're going to vote and, and this is directed toward anyone listening to this podcast, who's thinking about voting third party, you know, I was listening to a excerpt from a podcast with Brianna Joy Gray, who was Bernie Sanders press secretary during the democratic primary. How did you get through that one? And well, it was only an excerpt. But and I supported Bernie Sanders in the primary as those who are very, you know, if you've been listening since the beginning, you will know that. So Brianna Joy Gray, she has a podcast with some underwear skid mark from Chapo Trap House that she does. And this is a couple of weeks ago. They had Noam Chomsky on, who is not exactly Mr. Centrist. And Chomsky made the obvious case for voting for Biden, even though as progressives, Biden was one of the last people we wanted to be the Democratic nominee. And Chomsky basically said, look, if Trump wins, a lot of people are going to die. And Brianna Joy Gray responded by saying, but people are, are already dying or something like that, as if to say degrees don't matter. 
if people are dying, they're dying, regardless of the extent to which, for example, uh, climate change is killing us, the extent to which uh, destroying the, the Affordable Care Act would kill us, the extent to which the pandemic kills us, because the, Trump's response has been just abysmal. If that is your attitude, that, oh, well, people are dying anyway, I'm, and I'm going to vote for third party, then just vote for Trump and let's get this all over. Let's get all this over with sooner. Let's just transition to a full-blown autocratic dystopia run by the worst people our country has to offer. So if you're thinking about voting for Howie, if you're a progressive thinking about voting for Howie Hawkins, don't vote for Howie Hawkins. Just vote for Donald Trump. Just do it because that gets us on the path that just gets us more quickly to where you want to be, apparently. And, th- and that is just a hellscape of a dystopia. Uh, it, it, I, I just I, – I've had it. I've had it. You know, I'm not going to shame people. I'm not trying to shame people who are voting third party, but I just don't know what else. Like Donald Trump, you've seen four years of what this guy as president has done to this country. I don't know how you could possibly entertain the idea of voting for somebody who can't possibly win, like Howie Hawkins. Look, I, I, I think the point then is, is, is <laughs> it's not about that, right, is it? It's about this sort of um, these, these, there is this sort of cabal of, of uh, leftists, right, reactionary leftists who just – all the activists left. I don't know what you'd even call them these days, right? But they're just, it, they're sort of, um, what's the word? They're just, they're almost like trolls now, right? And they exist to troll the center. They exist to troll liberals. They exist to troll anybody who isn't sufficiently militant enough about Bernie Sanders or whatever far left candidate they happen to back. Um, and that's what they do. And it's a little industry that they've created for themselves and they can't get out of it. It's like a cult, you know, I think this probably the money, the monetary gain uh, is part of it. But I also think that, that it's, it's like a, it's like a cult, you know, and like that woman, Brianna Joy Gray, who I follow on Twitter, who is just intolerable. Um, and her Twitter feed is essentially just one giant sort of excuse. I think that she probably at some level understands that what she's saying is is deeply wrong and immoral. And her entire sort of Twitter feed, along with people like David Sorota, is an attempt to justify what they know deep down to be a, a completely wrong, um, immoral thing to do. Right, but they've backed themselves into a corner and they've got their rabid followers who they have to throw red meat to. You know, that's what they expect. They expect more of the same. You know, and they're not intellectually honest enough to admit it. You know, uh, and and here we are, um, you know, f- four days out from an election, uh, the most important election of our lives, and and they're still not not urging their supporters to go and vote for Joe Biden, which is just unconscionable at at this moment in time. Um, but look, I think uh, I, I think that's enough for today. Um, uh, this is yeah, the we last long. We, we went, went long on this we one. We went over, but I, I'm, I hope everybody here has uh, stayed with us. Um, if you're, uh, you know, if you haven't voted, um, vote. Please vote. Please, please, please vote. If you know somebody who hasn't voted, please go and get them to vote. Drive them to the polls. Put a mask on. Drive them there, um, or organise for them to be get to the polls. Um, 
do whatever you can donate what you can um to end this because you know i mean genuinely this will be this is the last chance america has avoid the end of his end of the democratic experiment it's since you know 1776 right it would be a pretty good run um but i think it can keep going and uh i i hope that um um everybody listening can can you know we've donated i've donated as much as i possibly can to the biden campaign and to senate campaigns to try and do this um please do the same if you can um you know this is really is last chance mike anything to add please vote yes um (laughs) all right well thank you so much for listening um, if you enjoyed the podcast, make sure you subscribe to the newsletter. Uh, if you'd like, you can get a two-month free trial with a Banter membership as well. Um, hope you're enjoying uh, the your Banter members. Again, a big thanks to everybody for supporting the newsletter. Uh, you know, it's, Your help is uh, much appreciated, so um, a, a big thanks. And yeah, we will see you after the election. <laughs>